Hello and welcome to the Modern Reformer podcast. The mission of the Modern Reformer is the edification of the saints through the recovery of the historic faith. I'm your host, Mitchell Roten, joined by my co-host, Avery Roten. Oi. Oi. I, like I feel like that's my greeting now, is the hoy. People are going to think you're... The audience want. They want that ahoy. People are going to think you're a sailor. I am a sailor of, of sorts. <clears throat> I feel like you get seasick easy. Is that, or is that me? No, that's not me. That is you. That, that was me. Well, I've been on the cruise ship. I never got sick. Mm. You ever been on a cruise ship? No. Okay. I was, Settled that debate then. I was going to go. Then the Rona hit. Oh, yeah. I had it booked. Yeah. I remember that. No cruise for me. Never been on a cruise. I wasn't a fan. Yeah. Apparently you get to eat a lot, which sounds good. I was a fan of that. Just uh, If you could just eat that much on land, it would be good. <laughs> you can. It's called the Golden Corral. <laughs> <laughs> I know where I'm going after this. <laughs> 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Hello, Golden Corral. All right, Dave. We've made it to chapter eight. Been a long, arduous journey. In one way, this is, I don't know, it's hard to overstate the importance of Christology. What's Christology? This is what this chapter is. Yeah, so uh, this chapter in Christology is going to get you the nature and the work of Christ. So what is he uh, in himself? What is he in relationship to his uh, uh, humanity? And why is that important? Mm -hmm. So what does he accomplish? <clears throat> so Christ of Christ the Mediator is a very important chapter. That's the reason they uh, take ten subpoints to do it. There are ten subpoints, aren't there? There's ten subpoints. Okay, that's what I thought. So uh, we usually, of course, if you've been tuned in, we go through the confession and we go through various scriptures that they cite. We'll do that somewhat today, but they use so many scriptures, it would just be exhaustive to try to try to do what we usually do. So it'll be more of a discussion at this particular one. Which is fine, I think. <laughs> so, why, why the the chapter is called Christ the Mediator, which obviously just the title says quite a bit about Christ and his work and his role around mediation. What's mediation? Yeah, so in this context, mediation is going to be the fulfillment of the covenant made to Adam, uh, in one sense. So there's no there's no um, there's, there's no coincidence that it comes after. <laughs> They've um, talked so extensively about the covenants, whether it's in the fall of man, uh, you see the covenant of works, where it's in the, of, of God's covenant, you see the covenant of grace. But Christ comes to fulfill those things and then mediate it. So it's the same way in which Moses does. Well, not in the same way, but Moses is the type of the mediation of Christ. So going up on the mountain, going to God for Israel, bringing back the commandments, th those type things. That's what Christ does, but he does it perfectly. And he does it in a way in which Moses can never do. <clears throat> so because God has obligated himself to man and he has obligated himself to man by way of covenant so not that he uh, had to but that he willfully chose to enter into this covenant so because he has done that it's necessary for Christ to fulfill those terms of that covenant so it's necessary for Christ to be a man it's necessary for him as you'll see through, uh, throughout this chapter it's necessary for him to fulfill the law uh, and to have dominion there you go Mitch that's it. Mm. Yeah. He's got it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's what they're going to confess in this chapter is, is 
it, it, this is a great starting point if you if if whenever anybody if you've ever studied christology if you've never really thought about it and your eyes glaze over mm-hmm. uh, it's it's so important uh, this isn't like a side note of theology this is the pinnacle this is the pinnacle yeah. this is the purpose uh i think the reason this is the pinnacle and purpose is because god has ordained it to be this way this is what god's been doing uh sending ultimately his only son into the world to redeem a fallen lump of humanity uh, to bring to pass his ultimate uh, revelation of redemption, uh, revealing his character, his nature, in both righteousness and judgment. I mean, uh, yeah. The central theme of the scriptures is Christ himself. So how important must it be to rightly understand Christ in his incarnation? Which we'll, we'll define these terms. I think uh, that's important to understand what's meant by... I, I think you can get to a point in uh, going to to church and studying things where you just hear terms and you never really either understand them or if you have understood them you don't meditate on them much i've yeah. been there yeah you don't let them that's full sure. weight doesn't really <clears throat> yeah yeah so before we get into the confession we have said in passing over time on this podcast that uh this confession is kind of a second generation reformed confession okay what we mean by that is the Reformation has already taken place in some sense. It's a post-Reformation yeah. confession. So all, we've we've broken away, broken ties from Catholicism yeah, as Protestants. We have. I mean, yeah, you're <coughs> over a hundred years of development at this point. Yeah. Know. So this well is, over a hundred years. Mm-hmm. So th- this is not uh, groundbreaking, uh, and in one sense, the Protestant Reformation <coughs> doctrinally was not groundbreaking in any way. It's it's it's. It's often heralded as this great departure from popish authority and this uh, running away from church authority. Hmm. And that's not actually fully the story. Um, The tagline of our podcast is ad fontes, which is the Latin for uh, to the sources. Their argument actually was not, we're going to branch out, we're, we're abandoning authority, and we're starting our own thing, which is what people think that the Reformation was. If you're Catholic, I guess. If you're Catholic, unfortunately. Their argument was, we're going back to historic Christian faith. Um, We're not taking uh, church authority um, as an equal stream of authority with Scripture, um, but we're not completely doing away with tradition either. And I'd like to actually get into two creeds. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, so they're claiming continuity with the early church. Their mm-hmm. assertion is yet that the, the the medieval ages had corrupted this church, and they were restoring it mm-hmm. to its original continuity with the church fathers. So, if you ever read Calvin in the Institutes, he quotes church fathers like crazy. Mm-hmm. I'm talking crazy. Yeah, and that's upsetting for someone who doesn't really understand like what this argument is. So, the argument is um, that the authority of men and the church as an entity has become massively uh, top-heavy. We've misunderstood this, and people are just making stuff up as they go. It's not a it's not a rapid break from everything God's been doing from the time of Christ forward, or even before. It's actually saying, the, the idea of ad fontes is, <clears throat> you say this, um, where does that come from? Where does ultimate authority derive and uh, w- what is the settler of all debate? That's really the question. Uh, you can see that in the debates with Luther 
who is a first generation, the first generation reformer, and all the debates that he has, they progressively become, he knows the Bible, and other men know tradition. And they, they fight about that, and they're really talking past each other, because uh, they have two different sets of authorities. So, uh, by tradition, medieval, all those terms, it, <clears throat> the way I would frame it for someone who has absolutely no knowledge on this subject, okay, the way I would frame it is, progressively over time, um, things develop. For example, when you hear a sermon today in any generic Baptist church, what it consists of probably a 15-minute homily of some sort, um, a bunch of uh, singing before and after, maybe, and then an altar call. So, so where does that come from? Like, where does that order of service come from? Where does it originate from? How do we get to that? Why do we expect that? All that is actually in the big scheme of things, a very modern development in um, liturgy, if you want to say it like that, the way that churches order service and operate. So when you ask yourself, why every Sunday do we have this um, unspoken like liturgical thing we do that ends every Sunday with an altar call? Well, that, that's because of influence, of traditional influence that comes from primarily the Second Great Awakening. So <clears throat> when you ask yourself, should we do an altar call or should we not? This is just an example. And you go back into scripture and tradition. Uh, you can see the development of why men choose to do this. Where does these things come from? How much authority do they carry? Um, as someone who's preached before, uh, people have looked at me very cross-eyed in the past because I did not give an altar call. And it's like they were pretty indignant about it. And it's like, why, why is that a requirement? And that's just an example of one thing that develops over time. So the argument of the Reformers is there's been a lot of things develop over time that aren't scriptural, biblical. They've kind of, in one sense, just manifested out of tradition and thin air. Over time... Um, yeah, so when we say Catholic Church, <clears throat> we, we've lost a sense of that's a universal... Well, whenever you say Catholic Church, and they seem to have monopolized it in the popular psyche anyway. So when you say Catholic Church, you think of Roman Catholic Church. Um so Rome would claim that its uh, its roots go back to Peter. Mm-hmm. That's nonsense. It's, it's indefensible. Other nonsense. Their their theology is like Mitchell was saying. What he was trying to get to is a development over time. Over time, it's not. Uh, it's not at all. If any, you if you could, and the argument from the reformers is, if you could yeah. go back to the first century and stand and listen to the apostles teaching and break bread with them and have fellowship with them. We're preaching what they preached. Right. That's the ultimate argument. So, uh, and that's also Rome's ultimate argument. And the way that you have to um, decide <laughs> which one's correct is uh, based on the, and that's 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 the debate. That's the question to this day. Um, yeah, so, I think it can be historically demonstrated that no one believed in all the dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, I'm going to just say in the first 400 years, easily, maybe the first 500 years of the early church. Oh, yeah. It's, oh, so, that's, oh, yeah. It's more than that. It's more than that. So, it, but that's conservative. So, put, so, so if you want to put a date on modern Catholicism, modern Catholicism is post-Trent. Okay. So it has a distinctively anti-Protestant flavor. On purpose, because of the Reformation. Because, because of the Reformation, because of the Council of Trent. If you want to just say at what point, if somebody said, hey, Abe, what, what what point does the Catholic Church exist in the way in which that modern people think of it? I've, two dates. So one's Trent, so 15, what was the Council of Trent? 1560s, 
40, whatever it was. I can't remember. I want to say 40s. Yeah. So the Council of Trent, which is a post-Reformation council, and it's... Counter-Reformation. It's a counter-Reformation. So this is reacting against the Protestants. They're mm-hmm. saying, yeah, we're not going to do any of those. The, the the other date I would give you, which some people speculate about this, would be the Fourth Lateran Council. At the Fourth Lateran Council, you get transubstantiation and those things functioning uh, in the way of, of, of dogma at that point because they've been uh, creedalized mm-hmm. uh, inside the Catholic Church. So I think the Fourth Lateran's 12... 12... Something. Twelve something. So you're talking about the, you know the 13th century there. Mm-hmm. So one of those two, um, as far as formalization. Before that, before that, you have something that's not Roman in nature. Mm-hmm. So uh, all that is just to get to one thing: is that as Protestants, we don't believe, as we st- kind of started out the podcast with, we don't believe that God just started working in America, say in the 1700s. That's it's not the case. Uh, we're claiming to go back uh, to a pure tradition, to a biblically informed tradition, to uh, what God's been doing this whole time. So to illustrate this, this chapter does it well, does it very well. Um, if you just threw a 20-year-old man who has been regenerate for two years into the pulpit and said, what do you think about Christ? How, how would you articulate uh who he is, what he's done. Uh, There's so many places where you could easily mess that up. (laughs) And not because, um, not because the Bible is not clear, but because there's, uh, it's a complexity. The doctrine of Christ is such a central thing and so easily corrupted that um, it's, it's very nice to have safeguards, things that have been handed down by faithful men in that sense was it candace owens that said that uh there was no christians before 1517 like that was an argument against the reformation i think that was candace owens and that was she she, she said i couldn't defend that that that's because and then i immediately said yeah nobody says that nobody nobody because she's become catholic oh right i think she's converted i think but that's a common thing as well if you're a protestant you just believe the church died out to 1517 that's not what we believe. Yeah. It's not what the that's not what the reformers believed. Yeah, well you, Definitely not Calvin. No, I mean you could see yeah. how problematic that actually is. I don't think that actually sinks into most Protestant people because they're not church history people. Mm. They, they, All right, they yeah. don't care. Yeah. So uh, that's a problem. So if 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 so if you're a Protestant and a winning argument to you would be, hey, you was no Christian before fifteen seventeen. Then you're not a Protestant, okay? Yeah. You might be nominally, and you might be—you're uh, not convictionally a Protestant at that point. You've never actually thought this through of why you go to church, where you go to church, or why you believe what you believe. <clears throat> and that's okay. Let's just do it now. <laughs> so, so, so uh, yeah, because that's a terrible uh, argument. Calvin in Book One somewhere—it was very in the book side one of the institutes. Book ones of the institutes. He writes, uh, of course, if you if you read the reformers, they don't quote very much uh, medieval theologians. They do quote anybody. It's usually Bernard of Calavasas, and Bernard is—he's uh, fantastic. What I what I know of him, anyway. But anyway, so so Calvin says, okay, if you if you don't believe that, then where's the church in the medieval times? Where's the church at the, at the height of this of this idolatry that is the mass of this popish Rome? Where's it at? And Calvin says it's the same place it is um, when it's when when um, when it's uh, um, some, I'm looking at, whenever the seven thousand don't don't to bend the knee to ball, 
Yeah, in the time of Elijah. In the time of Elijah. Like, for some reason, he says the same time. When you get to that, it's not visible, as in you can't point to it and say, there it is. Mm-hmm. But it's existent. <clears throat> so, because God saves his people. And, right, because, yeah. Well, so, so the Protestant argument is, we need to make that visible. Yeah, right. So, yeah. of course, he restores that, such as he does Israel and all those other things. But his point <laughs> was, that, like, yeah, you. this is the same time. We've seen this in the past. We've seen this in the Old Testament, where it gets to the point where it's, it, where it's not visible. Mm-hmm. You can't point to it and say, "Right there, it is." And that's what that's what medieval Europe is. Okay. Uh, I'm with you. So I probably uh, spent too much time the, on this. No, no, no. So there's continuity between Protestantism and Orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means right belief. Okay. I'm guessing you're just quoting all this to get to the creeds. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what I would have done. And I think it's important to see the consistency about Christology and Christology really is the place to, to see the most consistency, I think. So in the first easily four centuries, easily, that's 400 years. The, the first six centuries, <laughs> the first six centuries, the, 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 the issue. So in our day, this is an example in our day, What's the societal, cultural moment in which the church finds itself? What answers are really primary and hostile in the culture that we have to consistently address? Okay, It would be, what is man? What is human sexuality? What is the created order? Things of that nature that are just forefront. Forefront. Constantly attacked. Constantly debated. So at this time... Uh, the first 400 years, 600 years. Either one's fine. Either one's fine. <laughs> In the early church. There you go. Uh, it is... The patristic era. It is Christology. Who is Christ? And this is simply because of all the false religion, false concepts of God, false concepts of man that exist at the time. So, this comes to a front, a head, and two creeds. Creeds are just confessions <laughs> that are shorter. So, um, as a Protestant, you should be familiar, at the very least, with the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed. Those are three. Okay, so we're going to skip the Apostles' Creed, which is the earliest known creed. I think there's actually creeds within Scripture. We won't belabor that point. Creeds are just short statements of, we believe this. Yeah. So the I Nic- think I said that to start. Well, we you said did. that episode one. Yeah. So, the Nicene Creed is... Um, I won't give much background. It's Athanasius is the name that should ring in your ear. Athanasius versus uh, Arius. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two A's. So Athanasius and Arius have a, they're just figureheads, if you want to say it like that, of two different positions. uh, And it comes down to the divinity of Christ, his eternal existence, right? And this is a massive point. Every cult, every cult that claims to be Christian or even claims affinity to Christianity uh, has a different doctrine of Christ uh, uh, about his preexistence, about his divinity, and uh, even about his humanity. So the Nicene Creed was formulated over time. A council is called by the emperor. <laughs> and uh, these issues are deliberated from Scripture, and uh, a statement is made and becomes the test of orthodoxy over time, over time. So, I'm going to hold off on saying a lot about the Council of Nicaea because I can... Okay, that's good. Mm-hmm. The Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, 
maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. For us, for our salvation, he came down from heaven, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. We believe in the Holy Spirit. This is the addition. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Billy Oakwa. So this would be post, say, 340. The Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. Charlemagne would have added that, so he'd have been 600-something. No. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to, the life, and to life in the world to come. Amen. That's the Nicene Creed with some additions. Uh, so, no. Uh, no, no. So, uh, this is a statement on what we believe about God, about salvation, about sacraments. It's all contained, necessarily. So, uh, you see the Trinity. That's really the, the crux of this, what is true religion. It begins with a right articulation of God and who He is and how He's revealed Himself. Um, moving on to the Chalcedonian Creed, which is sh- it's a shorter creed. This was adopted uh, at the Council of Chalcedon, imagine that, in 451. Uh, this, is, this is this creed. We then, following the Holy Fathers, hmm, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. You see, immediately, that the issue of this creed is more nuanced. Okay, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us, according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly inseparably the distinction of nature's being by no means taken away by the union but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence not parted or divided into two persons but one and the same son the only begotten god the word the lord jesus christ as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him and the lord jesus christ himself taught us and the creed of the holy fathers has handed down to us Wow. <laughs> so hopefully we're going to do a good job at uh, showing why we've read these two creeds. <laughs> uh, anything to say before we get into the actual confession? I mean, so that's uh, that's the continuity. That's the air they breathe um, inside of this confession. And point two is pretty much um, it's 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 pretty much a restatement of Nicaea, uh, the Nicene Creed. <clears throat> it changes some orders, and I think it's a little, actually point two is probably actually a little closer than Westminster as far as to the, Nice, to, to the Nicene Creed, but mm-hmm. but we'll get there. So 
but yeah, that's definitely the the background. So they're not uh, the London here is not in any way confessing anything other than complete orthodox theology mm-hmm. on Christ and His nature. So here's the point, man. If men are saved by the work of Christ and it's sovereignly applied, I am not uptight, man. I'm not uptight. <laughs> the, if that's the case, then God can accomplish His will completely alone by Himself. We admit that. But, but the means that He uses are the Word, true knowledge, right, and saving obedience in that sense. Using means. So, to know God is to know Christ. To know Christ is to understand Him to this degree. Not that you uh, have to become familiar with all this terminology, per se, but that you understand what the Bible reveals about God and about Christ and His natures and His mission, what He's accomplished. So, that's what Christology is. Christology is the doctrine, the teaching, the right teaching of Christ. Uh, I'll say it one more time. You can spot a cult from 10,000 miles away based on what they say about Christ. It, it It's really uh, never fails, you know. Um, they either distort the natures of Christ, that is, his human and his divine nature. They distort the mission of Christ, that's his work and what it accomplishes. They distort the union with Christ, how we are to be one with him. So this really keeps you from death. <laughs> A right Christology keeps you from eternal damnation. Yeah, there's no wiggle room in chapter 8. None. <clears throat> Zero. You can't be like, oh, where we disagree, we'll go away. No, nope. being brothers. Mm-mm. Like, No, this separates Mm-mm. you from the family of God. Yes, it does. So, And that's why this is a... Not, not necessarily somehow like you're ignorant. I'm just saying if you confess something different and then believe something differently, you have a different Christ. Yeah, so it's uh, it's high time for you as a Christian to come to know the Lord. <laughs> right? Don't you think? <laughs> so... Uh, though this may seem a dry academic conversation, it is, I assure you, not one. This is not a dry academic. This is life, and this is death. That's what this is. And that's what we believe. So, now. Yeah, without any further ado. Here's a quick word from our sponsors. <laughs> An hour and a half later, we'll get into it. Sorry, Dave. Yeah, it's all right. I hate you. <laughs> you can't say that on here. I did. Okay. Chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator, which is just Christology. Okay, paragraph 1. Listen for the continuity to the creeds. That's why. So, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, the judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, glorified. So much in there. So much in there. Look, we should have probably just done 10 episodes on each point, I guess. You could. <clears throat> they use Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. First Peter nineteen to twenty. Uh, he was this is verse twenty. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. 
for the sake of you. Acts 3.22 Moses said, The Lord God will raise up a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him. Um, just a few other quick ones. This idea of the calling, justification, sanctification, glorification, that's just a direct restatement of Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he called, you know. Isaiah fifty three ten. Everyone knows that passage that listens to our podcast. Probably. Yeah, <laughs> Isaiah fifty three ten. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring; shall prolong his days. Of course, they use Ephesians one twenty two twenty three. Put all things under his feet. Gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his holy, the full. I'm sorry, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Basically, all of these, this is why we won't belabor the scriptural references, is because all these points are just basically biblical restatements, verbatim. Uh, The mediator between God and man, this idea of the go-between, the one who stands in our place and mediates this covenant to us. So... Yeah, so they start off with the only begotten, so that's begotten, mm. not made, right? So mm. that's the main point. What's when that he, mean? When he says begotten there, he doesn't mean the incarnation. He means the special relationship that the Father shares to the Son as the only begotten. That's a title, so he's not made, he's begotten in the sense of uh, eternally. Okay. What's what's commonly so let's start referred with this. to yeah. eternal generation. <laughs> let's start with this. Eternal generation. Which, I got you. I got it. Yeah. E. G. I think that's creedal, but I got you. Which hundred percent. So <laughs> what we're saying with this is that there was no time when Christ was not. <laughs> right. That's what Athanasius would have said. <laughs> so there was <laughs> in Greek, yeah. Hopox. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no time. When Christ didn't exist and didn't exist with this relationship to the Father. Yeah. This is the foundation of cult theology. The denial of this. Okay. Yeah. The equality between the members of the Godhead, specifically Christ. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims. <laughs> all the cults, offshoots. Islamics. All, all of them. They deny this, that Jesus is God. That that's the country boy way to say it. <laughs> lest, lest you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. That's what Christ mm-hmm. says. That I am yeah. eternally God. It, so he meant that. Okay. So this idea of eternally begotten <laughs> is just relationally to the Father. We know that's a massive topic that could. Yeah, be, we talked about that in the Trinity. We episode. did. It'd be yeah. its own episode, but mm-hmm. continuity. So the covenant made between them both—that's the covenant of redemption. Okay. Even though they don't say it by name, they confess it here as fact. A recap of the covenant of redemption is yeah. If you didn't the, listen to the last episode, so a, or the episode before that, or really any episodes up till <laughs> now, the covenant of redemption is an, is the covenant made before anything exists. This idea, that, and they quote First Peter one nineteen to twenty. This idea that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That's the covenant of redemption. Yes. Yeah. Foreknown, not in pre uh, knowing what he will do, but foreknown because we have an agreement. We mm-hmm. we know what will come to pass because we've decreed it. Uh, yeah. God has decreed it. Yeah. So, so inside the Godhead, before the foundation of the world, the covenant of redemption, or the fact that we would redeem a certain people, mm-hmm. a chosen humanity, uh, was made inside the Godhead. 
and that the way that this will come to pass is through the mediation, through the, and mediation just means middle. Okay. Wow. Uh, <laughs> you're so smart. Wow. You boys are smart. Save <laughs> itself. It, it, it means that he's in between. The way that salvation comes to pass is by Christ alone. Whoa. That he is, he is. You gotta be, quit with the whoa. He is between. He is between. Whoa, he, that's true. Oh, I know. I man. think when you see that all these things you could academically learn about the Reformation and doctrine are biblical, <laughs> it really changes. You're just like, wow, that's really handy. It goes from like grace alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, to like I, I believe, like this is what I believe. Right. So anyway. Well, so, so paragraph one is kind of a summary of everything in one way. It's his identity, his mission, the whole deal packed into one little short statement, which is very well said. Yeah. Uh, so head he, and savior of the church. Yeah. He's he's mm-hmm. the way that people have salvation is they have Christ as mediator. That's the only way. And as you can see, that's yep. not a work of man. Yes, yeah, so you can think of a mediator in that sense of Moses. You can think of the mediator in the sense of uh, the fulfillment of the covenant of works made to Adam. Yeah. The whole thing. Whole thing, yeah. Prophet, priest, and king. That's so, uh, M- Moses' yeah. mediation, I think, is a great place. I want to say yeah, this. Yeah, it's almost as if God illustrated something to you through the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Typology. So, so <laughs> Moses, Crazy he would I, do that. I want to say it's Exodus 31 and 32, somewhere in there, when the people build the golden calf, Aaron builds a golden calf, and then says, I don't know where it came from. <laughs> it just popped out of the fire. He got me. So I didn't collect everyone's earrings and stuff. In the in the midst of that, Moses goes on the mountain to God and mediates. He goes between the people and God mm-hmm. says, I will destroy these people and I will make from you a new nation. And Moses stands in between the people and God and says, Please don't do that. Yeah, for your own namesake, what he said. Just, for, because, just, just think of what everybody else is going to say. You know, pretty much. <laughs> so that uh, imperfect mediation of Moses mirrors actual yeah. but it is it is a mediation mm-hmm. and, and uh, so when moses says god's going to raise up a prophet from among your brothers like me that's typology man <laughs> that's typology some people so, would say wow <laughs> some people would say whoa whoa that's right whoa so whoa uh the three offices of christ here are, are central prophet priest and king those are the three old testament offices by the way you have prophet Prophet is God to man. That is, God speaks and man hears through the prophet. Clear. Priest is man to God. Man does transgression. He needs mediation. The priesthood, that entire typology, (laughs) is uh, mediation between man and God. And king is rule, authority, dominion. And Christ, all three offices are given to him. Yeah, so he's the fulfillment of all that uh, that is required of man and that we do. We should be prophets. We should be priests. We should be kings. We're not. We're not. No. We're not good ones. We need someone else. You, you are as you share in the, the nature of Christ, but he makes you that way because he fulfills it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. a lot of nuance there. but it's you a get, lot. A lot of nuance. You get the point. I do not subscribe. <laughs> Head and savior of the church. Head and savior of the church. Head yeah. means he runs it. Savior means he saves it. Uh, the heir of all things. That is, everything in creation from the beginning to the end go to him. 
He has that level of authority. Let yeah. that one sink in. Yeah, so ahead uh, there, you can think of the last Adam. What, what your front lawn, mm-hmm. the front lawn of the White House, the oil fields, the coal mines. I've missed something here. Your children. <laughs> everything. Go to him. Oh, okay. It, I'm with you now. Yeah. I didn't know where you were going with that. Bringing it together. Yeah, okay. He is the heir. That is the inheritor. That is, when it's over, it's his. <laughs> That's, yeah. He, he's going to have it. He has it now, but he's going to ultimately have it too. Yeah. Okay. Judge of the world. Mm. Yep. Uh, they use Acts 17. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. <laughs> so because, in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And uh, of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Yeah. This is our message, man. So his, so his, his, his resurrection there actually uh, produces, secures for him judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so because of his perfect fulfillment, his, his death is, is actual perfect obedience. Mm-hmm. So because of that, now he inherits the world, and therefore he judges it. Yes, he, he is. Right. He accomplishes world. this perfect obedience as a man. Our message, yeah. in an ultimate way, is we listen to the man who raised from the dead. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, you raised from the dead, we'll put you on the same ground. So because he raises from the dead, that and, secures and just his judgment. Re- is what I'm saying. For sure, that's yeah. what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. And it, just real quick, this raising from the dead is not, is not the Lazarus type of raising from the dead. I'm sure you've heard this. But Lazarus raises from the dead to die again. Jesus raises from the dead to not die again, ever. To, <laughs> as, to ascend to the right hand of the Father with his human nature that's glorified and to rule forever. So this type of resurrection is not the... Forever. Forever. This type of resurrection is not to another death. That's the difference. He's the only, yep. he's the only man that's mm-hmm. ever been glorified, ever. Yep. He's the first... And the last. That's right. So, uh, here's the... Savior of the church. So, King Savior of the church. Um, that's important. So, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Uh, so, that uh, it goes on to clarify that he's given uh, people a humanity. Um, that's who he saves. That's going to get you a limited atonement. This is the elect. Yeah, so limited atonement uh, is definitely confessed here. Particular, whatever you want to call it. Definite, definite, whatever. He did from all eternity give a people t- to be his seed. That is, from before there was <laughs> time, space, matter, people. Before creation, <laughs> this was decreed. And again, you see the continuity of this confession. They didn't just sit down on a Tuesday and say, "What should we write about Christ?" You know, <laughs> they, they, you have to think these things through, don't you? <laughs> You have to thank him through, is what I'm saying. This podcast is losing credibility fast, Mitch. You think so? <laughs> what did you say? Say that one. Time. What should we write about Christ? <laughs> what do we write about Christ? <laughs> okay, sorry. Okay. <coughs> so again, a restatement of Romans eight. Then he comes in time. Now this is this is the key, I think, to fully understand the work of Christ. It's an eternal, relational work decreed before the foundation of the world and then it comes to pass in time those are the kind of the two aspects yeah so it's decreed and accomplished and applied yeah. mm-hmm. there you go redemption accomplished yeah. <clears throat> and applied so it's decreed before the foundation of the world is accomplished inside of time with the atoning death of christ and it's applied to you at your justification at your call and at your conversion <clears throat> yeah. 
So he redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, glorified. Yep. That's, there all, you go. that's all his work. So as you can see, such as in Romans 8, if, if God has decreed for you to be redeemed, he has called you, that is an effectual calling because he had called you. He then justifies you because he justifies you. He then sanctifies you. Uh, that sanctification is gradual conforming uh, into your already uh, imputed identity of being in Christ. And then glorification is at the point of his return when he raises you to an imperishable body. <clears throat> that's what they mean. That's what those terms mean. And that's pretty much just a recitation of Romans 8. Yeah. As Mitch has already brought to our attention. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks, Mitch. <clears throat> Paragraph 2. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very an eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things. He has made, did, when the fullness of time was complete, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin, be conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. Without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? So this is uh, <laughs> this is this is the recitation of Nicaea in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, this actually comes out of the Thirty Nine Articles, which I didn't know until I read Renahan's book. Uh, currently reading the book, I guess. But the Thirty Nine Articles, uh, so the Westminster would have been uh, pretty much a, a reforming of those. So uh, that comes the Thirty Nine Articles comes of this from the Westminster and the Westminster to here through the Savoy, but. It originates in the 39 Articles, which I just was a tidbit of information for you. <clears throat> so that's the reason we call him the second person of the Trinity. He's begotten, not made. He shares that unique relationship. That's the reason we can have an order in that. But then also we see that there is no uh, division inside the nature of God. He's confessing him to be with the Father, one with the Father. Um, so this is theologically what's been called the hypostatic union. Um, So, oversimplification. Nicaea is concerned with the divine identity of Christ, him being eternally existent and not coming to exist as a man, that uh, he is God. Chalcedon is 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 concerned with how that works. How he's, yeah, in the form, how he's he's a man. Yeah. Yeah. So is he a deified human? Is he a humanized deity? <laughs> right. yeah. And you could see, now, again, I think any solid churchman, any solid person in the pew, has inherited a long line of teaching on this, if you're in any type of solid church whatsoever. The stuff you take for granted. Yeah, it's just assumed. It's just assumed. And you, you don't really think about the mystery very much. So No. Uh, so, you should think about it. <laughs> so, so, uh, so he's, a, he's not a deified human, nor is he a humanized deity. Um, and that that's the hypostatic union. How does that work? Uh, and it's a statement of mystery, as most things are. Yeah, so when you explain the mystery, that's the heresy. That's when you get in the heresy, when you try to explain it versus holding the mystery. Well, I'm glad you held me back. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, me too. So if you're trying to explain the mystery of that. <laughs> so this also goes back to the Trinity uh, episode, this idea of what God is, who God is. Yeah. So uh, so because he makes the covenant of works with man, uh, a man must fulfill that. That's the reason Christ must be a man to order to, medi- uh, to be the, the, the mediator of this covenant. He doesn't make a covenant with angels. He doesn't make a covenant with, with, with inside himself. He makes a covenant with man. And that, and that must be fulfilled by a man. He obligates himself to that by the way of covenant with man. So that's the reason that Christ must become a man. So we see there he's the brightness. So it, it through him the world is made. It's important here that, that they don't say that the Father made the world through Jesus. They're saying Jesus made the world. That's because of his oneness with the Father. There's not three centers of consciousness there. There's oneness, <clears throat> which we could talk about a lot. But uh, they're, they're confessing, like like Mitchell said, Nicene Orthodoxy. He, he He's God in him of himself, which this is very... This is clarified in the Reformation. Yeah, so I think, I think uh, <clears throat> biblically, okay, so this, this to me, and I think to anyone... Autotheos is a great is a great statement of bi- that's the Latin word I was trying to look for a great statement of biblical truth a summary of what the Bible teaches a few a few places to go to the Gospel of John in general but especially the prologue to John that's John one to eighteen John chapter one verses one to eighteen they they specifically quote John one fourteen the Word became flesh and dwelt among us we have seen His glory glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth both. Uh, ideas are represented here. There's no other way to take John, I guess is what I'm saying. That um, he's from the Father, he's one with the Father, but he takes on flesh, this idea of a union. Philippians 2, also, they don't use that. Galatians 4, 4, of course, in the fullness of time, comes God, sends forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Yeah. Um, 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So this uh, this idea of incarnation, what's that mean? Yeah, so what you have is his divine nature, what he is, God in him of himself, theos, And then you have subtraction of that by addition of a, hum- of a humanity to him. So addition of a human nature. So he never changes state in that. While he is yet a man, according to his divine nature, he, up- he upholds the world. Right? He governs the world. He is God. And by that, he takes upon himself a human nature. Now, that human nature that he adds to himself does not subtract from his deity, nor does he change states. That's the reason they're confessing this, that it is uh, uh, not of distinct... Uh, what, what are they saying? I can't, for some reason. Can't read? No, I can't see. I'm looking through the microphone. <laughs> I don't know. I was on a roll there. You were. Uh, so without without conversion, uh, perfect, composition, or confusion, perfect and distinct natures and yeah. separately joined together. Uh, yeah. So this so, is the this is the orthodox test. Yeah. So here you, it is. So, got so the personhood of Christ is not double. That's the yeah. key. Uh-huh. Um, nor is the per- so so. Uh, so you have the two distinct natures in the one person of Christ. Yeah, that's what you have there. That's what's uh, that's what's taught in the Bible, and that's what's confessed here is that you have the addition of the human nature, both of those things being mutually exclusive, also in the one person of Christ. So in his divine nature, he cannot die. In his human nature, he dies. Yeah. And those things are in union in Mm. Christ. Yeah. So um, notice, according to the scriptures, the seed of Abraham and David. So what you see, big picture, in the Old Testament, 
believe it or not, is that the Messiah will be a man born of the tribe of Judah, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, and he's also God. <laughs> yeah. So you see that prophesied in various ways at uh, many times. Yeah, so the deity doesn't swallow up the humanity, and the humanity doesn't somehow become deified. This uh, idea that he has to be a man, uh, Hebrews 2.17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Yeah. Um, so, biblically, again, I would say John and Hebrews would be the two big things. Hebrews is really a class of Christology in one way. All right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day. So, um, nonetheless... The reason things in the, in the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, and in, in this confession, in, in Protestant confessions on this topic, the reason they're kind of specific, very detailed, kind of philosophical, is because of all the corruption that's come and went, right? Mm -hmm. So the reason Nicaea is so specific on its particular subject matter is because of the, because of the corruption, because of the heresy. And you see this almost as a means that God uses in his church is that, okay, for example, again, going back to our day, when have we ever had to think so deeply about marriage or about, um, say, humanity, sexuality, things of that nature? Like we've been forced to really do some deep meditation on that in our time. Um, probably not extremely deep because it's pretty surface-level <laughs> stuff, but, but you know what I'm saying. Um, the heresy drives the confession. Yeah, that's, um, that's a good point. So... Uh, that's the reason I think the Westminster just says of the same substance with Mary, no, so, no. Uh, or in his, in, his, in his nature. Okay, so I think we'd have to read it. <clears throat> but in the spirit of the womb of the Virgin Mary, uh, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her. So I think they they add emphasis there, they add detail there, which I think the Westminster leads out. <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, so the reason they do that, I think, is because uh, in Baptist circle, at least in general Baptist circles at the time. You had a, a Christological heresy that would be like uh, I can't remember the name of it, something with an H, but it's pretty much pretty much a divine flesh. So he's saying that he's not really a man; he's it's celestial flesh or it's divine flesh, it's, it's deified humanity. Um, mm -hmm. He's not truly a man. So that's the reason you see the clarification of that when it says that that um, he is in the uh, he is one with us. Um, so the difference, the reason. Um, Essential properties and common infirmities. And that's also important because when we say that Christ is incarnated as a man, not that he comes into existence, but the addition of the human nature, he inhabits a post-fall flesh. Yeah, so incarnate uh, means literally wrapped in flesh to put flesh on. So uh, when we say Hitler is evil incarnate, right, we understand what we mean. So Christ is incarnate, and really it's a theological term, right? That's where mm -hmm. it comes from. Kind of like hypostatic union. Also, you don't use yeah. that for anything. So um, when we say incarnate, what we mean is Jesus doesn't come into existence as a human, is that he is deity wrapped in flesh. And you see this. I don't think they cite this. They don't. But the transubstantiation is a, is a great, which is another theological term, which means you show, you show the transitional substance. <laughs> In that, in that sense. Well, that clarifies it. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so, so Jesus peels back his humanity, as people have said, to reveal his divine nature to the 
Peter, James, and John on the mountain of transfiguration. Yeah. He's transfigured before them. So the veiling of that is is not the loss of it. It's yeah. not, it's not the kenosis in the sense that he loses it. It's veiled. So he so not that he doesn't have it, but he 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 sets it aside in the sense that he doesn't take up its uh, privileges. Mm-hmm. So uh, two things about his <laughs> about his humanity. One thing, it's different from us in one regard. It doesn't have sin. It's not tainted with original sin. Yeah, so... Yep. That, that's the big thing. And the mm. other big thing is, in every other way, it's the same. <laughs> yeah, so he so, inhabits a post... That's what, that's what I was Yeah, that saying. means he could get arthritis. Yeah, yeah. so he, he inhabits a post-fall humanity. He doesn't inhabit the same flesh that Adam does before the fall. No. He's in, the, he's in a fallen post-fall world. Without a sinful nature. Without a sinful uh, nature. That's... Uh, now, we get into that. I think that's uh, the break of... Ordinary generation, that's the reason he's born of a virgin. But there's some debate about that. But Well, suffice it to say, he's born of a virgin. Yeah. Uh, that's a mystery, right? It's a miracle. The same way that you don't ask, do you think God had a supernatural fan at the Red Sea? Like, that's the wrong question. It's the wrong <laughs> question. It's just not the right question. I've never heard it's, that. That's a good one, though. No. Okay, it's a, <laughs> it's a miraculous uh, event which yeah, means he doesn't it, use means right yeah which we've already we've already determined that he's free yeah, so not to do supernatural yeah. means mm-hmm. it's above the use of ordinary means and therefore christ is born of a virgin that means the 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 normal generation of men is not taken into account this idea of the holy spirit overshadowing her which is the language that luke luke uses in the gospel of luke means that it's a miracle. I don't know how else to frame that. It's it's not yeah. saying any type of weird thing, right? That there's somehow an, a normal generation. It's saying that um, the Mary was a vessel used of God for His purpose to bring His Son into the world. That's it. That the Holy Spirit overshadowed her in a miraculous way, and there was Monday evening she was not pregnant. Tuesday morning she was pregnant with um, the God Man. And she understood this to some degree. You can read her Magnificat, the <laughs> prayer she prays in Luke. Uh, so long story short, uh, the key to this is that Jesus fulfills the scriptures. Um, he is the correct last Adam. He is the correct last David. He is the correct last Moses. He fulfills the entire scope of biblical purpose. Um, but the only way he does this is if we understand his nature and his work correctly, right? Um, so getting into the hypostatic union, this is important, which is the union of God and man. And the way it's been articulated, the simplest way to say it is fully God, fully man, or truly God, truly man from the language of Chalcedon, that he's a real man fully, and he's God fully. They're not mixed they use this conversion, composition, or confusion. Confusion means um, not together, not um, mixed, I think is how I would say it in our time. Conversion means that one um, converts into the other, that deified humanity, uh, humanized deity. Composition mm-hmm. means that somehow there's pieces and parts, um, that he's when he becomes man, he's still 75% God. Yeah, he's half God, half man. Something like that. Confusion, of course, is mixing. So the test of orthodoxy here is one person, two natures. Okay. One God, three persons. One person, two natures. That's the biblical test of orthodoxy. 
Now, again, it's a lifelong pursuit to try to fully grasp that, not that you ever really can, but that you grow in your understanding and ability to articulate that. But uh, that's it. So, um, which person is very God and very man? That's the language they use. Truly, very, fully, whichever adjective you want to ascribe, it means that... Use truly, it's, it's creedal. Truly is better. Here it is your first. So, uh, unmixed natures. Yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Um, I cannot remember the name of this guy. He wrote a book on why the God man. Um, very early in church history. And it really, again, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't describe everything the guy said. I can't remember his name. He wrote a book that basically... Big impact on you. Big, it was massive. <laughs> uh, had a had a book, had, a, had an idea of why Jesus has to be both. If you... If you want to believe uh, salvation is what it is and it comes through the means it does, Jesus actually has to be both in order for this. No man could take the sin of another man if he's only a man, right? And no God could ever be a mediator between God and man who's not a man. That That's the synopsis uh, yep. of the whole, yep. whole idea. Agreed. Agreed there. So you said it very well there, Mitch. Um Go with that, you know, hypostatic union, the two natures in the one person. That's what's confessed here. Truly God, truly man, indwelt among us. Move on. Oh, we could talk about that forever. I mean, I could add more comments. I just, it's important to see uh, this is what qualifies him to be the last Adam, that he is a man, like you said. Uh, this qualifies him to fulfill that covenant of works given to him. To keep the law, uh, we'll go on to that as we <coughs> and get more points. Anselm. Mm. Oh, Google's a wonderful thing. Saint Anselm, Cur Deus Homo. Why the God Man? <laughs> That's <laughs> Latin. Did you pronounce that right? Cur Deus Homo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why the God Man. Cur Deus Homo. Saint Anselm, which had some problems in his theology, but um, <coughs> this wasn't one of them. Is a, this wasn't one of them, was it? This was not. Uh. I would recommend it uh, tentatively. We, are, well, we also probably need to clarify that my position is like, it's not as if the early church had everything right. No, no. It's a, it, the church is purifying itself the more that Christ reigns in it and purifies it for his own purposes. But that's, you know, that's my position. So we don't need to look for every single thing to say, look, you know. No, we have an ultimate authority, which yeah, is scripture. Right, so. so, yeah. But we don't say, well, these guys aren't Christians and we don't have nothing to do with them either. You know, so mm -hmm. there's a balance there. Yeah, for sure. Which you know, so uh, probably he, didn't need to be he, stated, but he, it does. It, it fulfills. He fulfills Old Testament prophecy fully. Yeah, so he's the he's the seed promised to Abraham. He's, he's the, the he's the king promised. He's the seed to, promised to Eve. He's yeah. the seed promised to Abraham. Yeah. He's the ruler of yep. David. He's this the true prophet, better than Moses. Yeah, the whole deal. So that's that's so you have to embrace the typological nature of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. in order to see the New Testament in its full glory and its full purpose. Luke 1 is where you can find the incarnation. Romans 9, they quote verse 5, To him, uh, about Israel, to them belong the patriarchs from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all. The Bible never says Jesus is God. Romans 9, 5 does. <laughs> what? <laughs> gotcha. I think it says it literally everywhere. I do too. But Romans 9, 5 says it very clearly. Uh, if you don't wish to submit to the scripture, sure it doesn't say it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure it doesn't say it then. So, uh, 
hypostatic union, as they say, distinct natures inseparably joined together one person. Last thing I'll say, this idea of inseparably means that when Jesus takes on, because I've had this conversation with one of those Pentecostals, let me tell you this. You tell ready? us about it, man. Here it is. What happened to Christ when he ascended? Well, he just became what he was before. Nope. You know, he ascends with the addition of the human nature. Yes, he does. In the fulfillment of the covenant. Yes, he That's is. the change. It, so, so the yeah. the thing that That's happens... That's the inside of time. Yep. yep. The thing that happens is he ascends as a man, a joined glorif- to a, a divine nature. A glorified man. A glorified man. A glorified man. God man. And he sits at the right hand of the I'll throne you, of God. I'll you out there, Mitch. That's close. <laughs> he mediates this covenant as a man. Yeah. So he, he ascends in this nature... Right, in this person with the two natures of the glorified God-man, now completed this covenant given to Adam fully and, and completely, even the death. So that's the reason that death, that, that's the reason the grave could not hold him. That's the reason he resurrects. That's the reason he ascends unto a, say it with me, Mitch, a throne. A throne. Where he rules and reigns. He reigns. Now. Now. Yep. <clears throat> Paragraph three. The Lord Jesus in his human nature thus united to the divine. In the person of the Son, a restatement of paragraph 2, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. That's at his baptism. Okay. Having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety, which office he took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his father, who also put all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. Yeah, so what what does he do with this uh, hypostatic union now? This is what he does. He fulfills the covenant. Um, he's capable of doing those things. He's, as a man, empowered by the Holy Spirit, indwelt. In that, in so that they, <clears throat> since biblically, Acts 10, 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power. That's where they got that. He went about doing. Oh, that's where they got the image. He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil. God was with him. John three thirty four, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. I think it's easily missed, and it kind of really blew my mind when you think of uh, the the Holy Spirit's ministry through Christ, right? Um. Christ, as a man, lays aside the exercise of his divine attributes, the exercise of his divine prerogatives. Mm. Um, Philippians 2, it's this is where the... Privileges do- exercise, yeah. yeah. So the that's, I think, the right way to understand it. Yeah. Philippians 2 uses the Greek kenosis, which means emptying. Uh, Philippians 2 says there's he, a biblical, there's a non-biblical understanding of that when he when he loses his attributes. But the biblical mm-hmm. understanding is what Mitchell just said would he, be he empties himself of right. the exercise of the ex, the um, privileges in the exercise. He, he doesn't empty himself of the exercise in his divine nature. He does in his human nature. Mm-hmm. It's privileges, right? He that's that's the humiliation aspect <clears throat> of yeah. the incarnation that he mm-hmm. lays aside the use of his divine prerogatives in his human nature. That's, yep. So um, he takes upon himself the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He takes upon himself the form of a bondservant um, in Philippians 2. Um, Paul, in teaching on humility in Philippians 2, says this is what humility is, that you're God and you lay it aside. <laughs> That's yeah. the ultimate example, right? So um, in that, you see the doctrine of kenosis, which means emptying, which is 
the doctrine of the incarnation. Uh, and it's interesting that in Scripture, most of the time, I mean, a lot of times you have direct statements like... It's emptying uh, of the privileges. The exercise of the privileges. Okay, yeah. Okay. yeah I'm good with that. So There's, there's an unbiblical... As, as already been said, yeah. subtraction by addition. This idea of he didn't lose some sort of deity, he didn't stop existing eternally as God, but he took he, upon himself a human nature. He veils it in his humanity yeah, and functions as and truly the, man. And there's times when he pulls the veil back to reveal. Yeah, transubstantiation. Oh, the Mount of Transfiguration. Sorry. Okay. Whoa. Yeah, oh, you put me back here. <clears throat> this might be the best example. You of can the, think of the, uh, real quick, you can think of the, of the ascended Lord and Savior uh, as he appears to John in Revelation. That's what he is now glorified in completing of the covenant. The, the, the suffering servant is now complete. You have the triumphant Lord who reigns. Uh, it's not that he's changed in the sense that he's not glorified man, but he has fulfilled and consummated that at his ascension. You see that poetically, right? Yeah, so you're right. So you see that in the vision of John, what, of his uh, unveiled nature there of the two, as his unveiled attributes as in the one person there. But that's a different conversation. So when it says that he's able to keep it, um, that means he's like us, the Hebrew says, in every respect without sin. So he's separated from the fall of Adam, and he's given the commission. And, and, and unlike Adam, he's actually able to do it. Um, <clears throat> so he actually does it, unlike Adam, which Adam's able to do it pre-fall, but that's not important right now. This might be the best example of just biblical restatement. And what I mean when I say that is the Bible says something directly. Say Hebrews seven twenty six. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And what they, conf- what they confess here is just restating biblical things. Uh, they cite, of course, John 1, 14 again. Hebrews seven twenty two. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Hebrews 5, 5. Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Acts 2.36 Let the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So this idea of his uh, office being media- the mediator between God and man, this again is the compromise of every false religion, including Catholicism. This is the compromise. The exclusive office of Christ as mediator. And what that means is Christ alone, right? Um, <laughs> alone. Christ alone. <laughs> That's exactly what I was doing. Christ is alive. <laughs> so he, uh, he only has the ability to save. It's not a synergistic effort. Mm-hmm. It's a monergistic effort that he completes, right? Yeah, I do also, it's important, I think, well, I don't know how important it is, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, there's a Protestant doctrine, I can't remember the name of it, the impeccability of Christ. Mm-hmm. So that's his inability. You don't believe that? No, I do. Oh, okay, good. I do, I just don't know how important it is right now. It's, so it's Christ. Why'd you in, bring it up? <laughs> in his two natures, is unable to sin because the the, the, the deity upholds the humanity. That's debated. Yeah, that's debated. I think that's my position, as in he's able to be tempted, but he's not able to fall. Like this wasn't at any point. Like questionable or yeah. contingent, like this is decreed and accomplished. So the, <clears throat> I think the point in this. So that's what, I think that's what they mean when he says that he's wholly harmless. Oh, it? sure, right, undefiled. He didn't sin. Yeah. Right. So um, I think the point in this is that uh, it's a triune point. Is that uh, 
in in his human nature, Christ was empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit uh, is actually the power that Christ uses in his uh, human Humanity. ministry. Yeah. So when we think of Jesus as divine, we see, we see those natures in the narrative. So, for example, he needed no man to testify about men. He knew what men thought. He knew the very mm-hmm. heart of man, uh, knowledge that only God has, right? That's before his baptism in John 2. Yeah. So we see that that they're unmixed, but they're still present in the person. But um, what the Bible does assert, and I think what they're confessing here, is that the mission yeah. and the ministry of Christ is carried out in the power of the Spirit. That as a man, he lays aside the use of his divinity to accomplish his means. That is, when he is obedient to the Father in the garden, when he's obedient to the Father on the mountain of temptation, when he's obedient to the Father on the cross, he does so through the power of the Spirit. He doesn't um, mix the natures and have the power of his divinity because he laid it aside. That's a massive point. That he as a man is a real man and that his obedience is a real man obedience. Massive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the Spirit is the one who empowers, enables, works in him that obedience. And he does um, He does the obedience perfectly. And perfect. because he does perfect. it perfectly, what does he do? He, he is the guarantor of a better covenant. Yeah, so. Because he keeps that covenant, he's highly exalted now. Mm-hmm. He's no longer... The, what I want you to see is that upon the completion of this probationary period for Christ in the incarnation, he's highly exalted. He no longer remains the suffering servant, but the triumphant Lord. Okay, mm-hmm. So when we think of Jesus meek and mild, you have to understand Jesus meek and mild produces what? Jesus triumphant. Yeah, he's executed that part of his mm-hmm. redemption yeah of his plan of his of uh, god's purpose not and, to say that he's not meek and mild now but you know understand i, I understand yeah. yeah i understand what you mean <clears throat> so he's put all power and judgment in his hand he gave com- him commandment to execute the same execute that power and execute that judgment yeah uh so you uh, want to talk about the, we talked about the economic trinity didn't we yeah somewhat so go ahead yeah, so this is the Trinity inside of the economy of redemption. So you see the roles taken. That's the reason we can say that the second person of the Trinity, he's the one that's wrapped in flesh. So the Father there is representing the whole Godhead. He, he retains the majesty of Christ in the incarnation, subjects himself to the Father as a man. Um, but, but what's called the ontological Trinity never changes. He's, that never changes. There's still one center of consciousness there in which there are one God <clears throat> in that sense. And then, so whenever we see these things, <laughs> we, we see them in, in what's called economy or how it works out. So we, we must separate those things. We must say, yes, this is how it functions in relation to, in the covenant of redemption. This is how it functions in and of itself. The Bible mandates you to do that. If you're going to be a good theologian, if you want to be a, a mature Christian, you have to understand that, right? And <clears throat> that's what they're saying here. So whenever, when it says the Father, right, when he says he submitted himself to the Father, that says a man. That says a man. So I don't know how, how deep you want to go into that, but that, that's a high over high overview of it. Yeah, I think uh, I think the simplest way to understand that is. There's no simple way to understand That's that. true. The simplest way, <laughs> the simplest yeah. way I can articulate is that God exists as what he is, and he reveals himself by what he does. Yeah. He also reveals, of course, what he is, but uh, you really see that for us to understand 
in what he does. So um, from creation and redemption, primarily. Yeah. So so he he reveals that he's triune by nature. That is, this is what I am. <laughs> yeah. Right. Then well, that's re- the reason Jesus can say that I am. Right? Claim the claim Yahweh for himself, and also say I'm praying to the Father mm-hmm. because of the economy, right? And the roles taken in that. Yeah. So really, the Bible is the self-revelation of God. Yeah. That's all that it is. As if that's. So when you try to uh, confess the mystery of those two things, how it works, that's when you get into heresy. Well, it's easy to get into heresy. Yeah. So when you say, well, maybe it's. Uh, Divine humanity, maybe it's a humified deity. If you don't hold that... Humified. Humified. (laughs) So if you don't hold those distinctions and say, it's the two distinct natures joined together in the one person. Okay, before we get into paragraph four. Yeah. I really think there's a... That is impeccability, right? Yes. Yes. I I thought that was right. Yeah. That's the inability to... You think I ought to write some of this stuff down, but I don't. No, don't pat yourself on the back too hard. Um, yeah, well, I'm just saying that you think it would be better that I wouldn't have to ask you if that's the correct term. That's the correct term. That's yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some critique real quick. Who are you critiquing? It, no one in particular. Oh, okay. I'm going to do classic evangelical critique. Oh, no one. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> gotcha. so we, li- we, we live in a time where people see the pastoral role as basically relational. That is, I want to be your friend. I want you to feel confident and have trust and take my counsel and uh, basically like a, a big daddy, right? Uh, uh, like I'm your daddy. You love me. I love you. We have this love relationship. A pastor is a teacher. Why would he be? Now, hang That's on. Fine. Go Here ahead. comes the critique. Here comes the critique. We live in a time where doctrine is minimally understood because it doesn't come from the pulpit. It doesn't come. People go hungry and leave hungry to church every Sunday for 30 years. They've never heard anything about theology, about God, about the ontological slash economical trinity. And I'm not saying you have to be some sort of wordsmith. What I am saying is, though, your responsibility as a pastor, here's the critique, is to instruct the people about God. That's the only reason you're there. That's your primary role. You want to go visit the hospital, do weddings, do funerals. All that's also great. That's not primary at all. What we've done is reverse primary and secondary pastoral roles in our time. We think of a pastor as, again, someone who's by my graveside, by my bedside, there for me. Okay, and that's good in a personal, relational way. What's missed is this man speaks, thus says the Lord, on Sunday from the pulpit, on the Lord's Day. He speaks authoritatively and um, in so much as he represents biblical truth. This is why we need a soundboard where you can like, play the organ. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, um, that's a great it, point. It, it, a, it, I only say that to say that um, if you, if you go to a church and you enter in and they're going to say we're going to teach you about the Trinity today and you're just like, gosh, I can't wait till this is over. Um, <laughs> you need Let's get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I came to feel good. <laughs> so so here's the thing. Mm. That's what you need. You need to know God. Jesus came to reveal God. No man's ever seen God. The only God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. If you don't know God, but you have a great relationship with your pastor, 
that's not good. And obviously, pastoral ministry is obviously relational. There's an aspect. No doubt. <clears throat> but it's secondary. Well, it's secondary. I would say so, it flows out of. It flows out of. You say what you want, man. Okay. Well, I'm just trying to help you out here. Okay. So I say so, it flows out of your responsibility of a theologian. Well, first off, every pastor is a theologian. You uh, are an interpreter of this covenant, as in you interpret it for the people. You don't mitigate it. You, you're not the mediator. You don't do those things, but you deliver it to them. How, You've been given that gift. How does Christ rule over his people? In his word. How is the word administered to his people? Through the sacraments, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and through prophecy or preaching, or the preaching of the word. Yeah. Are you an under rower, a galley slave? Me? Uh, pastors? Yeah. All right, then. So, so paragraph, paragraph four. What are you looking for there, Mitch? <laughs> Where are you going? But yeah, so I'll say that. So if you're a pastor, first and foremost, you're a theologian, okay, in the sense that God must be brought down and delivered to the people. Primarily. Uh, primarily. And what flows out of that is proper shepherding sure, sure, of what it, sure. what it calls you to do. I would never minimize how important it is to do weddings and funerals and be by people's bedsides. That's, that's very important. But you can do that as a shell of what you're supposed to be. Yeah, right. So if you're not a theologian and you're only relational, then you're lacking in that office. If you say no one really cares about these things, that's your fault. That's mm. your fault. You have yeah. to make them care. If they don't care, they're in sin. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point as well. That's also true with your children. So 100%. as as your children, you're not to get them to adhere to the rules. You get to the you're, you're supposed to get them to love the rules. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. the same thing you're doing on a big scale with, with a pastor is to say, "Look, here is Christ. Here is his here's what you're supposed to do. Love Christ, love him, see his beauty." Mm-hmm. And that's that's Lord Day preaching. You deliver the people unto the face of God. Mm-hmm. All right, We're, we got off subject there, but that's good. I think. No, I, think <clears throat> I only say that because this is a deep doctrinal thing that most people don't have yeah. a stomach for because they haven't been properly instructed to how majestic and yeah, how central this is. There's an anti-intellectual to, notion of the of, of the of the day is in like you said. I just need the feels, um, no. because we live in a post. Well, like a post-synchro-sensitive church. And, and that affects you whether you think it does or not in the sense that this is what I, I like church this way and I do it this way and it makes me feel good and all my preferences. Uh-huh. Versus the submission of saying this is scripture, uh, this is the way God d- determines these things. But yeah, so I mean it affects you more than you think yeah. either way. I don't care a, what denomination you A big you're in. part practically of being reformed is exegetical preaching. That is, preaching... That goes verse by verse through the text. Why? Because that's where God's knowledge is located. That's special revelation. We say uh, sola scriptura. We believe in scripture alone as the final authority. And we just point at it while we ramble on. That's not it. It's not it. Ramble on. on. <laughs> we should do that. Paragraph four. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake. We need to get into that which that he might discharge, he was made under the law mm-hmm. and did perfectly fulfill it and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of his Father, making intercession. So return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. Mm. There's my eschatology, baby. <laughs> so, so, oh yeah, let's talk about that. No, 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 no. 
So Jesus <laughs> is um, willfully submitting that, to the Father. Yep. So apart from uh, the second person of the Trinity willfully saying that I will do this, you don't have. This is the atonement. So this is this is uh, the great exchange in the atonement. What's talking about right here in, in chapter sub point four. So if you if you have a Christ that is unwilling to do these things in which the Father is will is coercing into this uh, into this obedience into this death, then you you don't have an atonement. You have a murder mm-hmm. because he's actually righteous. He actually does not deserve that. So yeah. this willful this willful uh, obedience here is crucial because without it, you don't have the atonement. And you don't have substitution, and you don't have imputation. Like I said, so, you have a murder. Yeah. So John ten eighteen, then a passage on the good shepherd talking about his life, and his ransoming people. Basically, no one takes it from me. That is his life. But I lay it down of my own accord. This is Jesus. I have mm-hmm. authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Mm. That is this entire thing in a nutshell. That, that, let's, let's let's talk about something real quick. Okay. So who raises Jesus? At, 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 as, at his resurrection That's a trick question No <laughs> I think I think he raises himself The father raises him And the spirit raises him So the, it's an act of the triune God it, it is. Of which that he's given authority to do That's, That's important Yeah That scared me a little bit <laughs> I'm not, I was not prepped for this I was not prepped for this question Hang on uh, That That is this entire thing in a nutshell This uh, yeah. I have the authority To lay it down Yep So You know who doesn't have the authority To lay their life down Me <laughs> uh, Jesus actually I'm a, a dependent now, being now, yeah. here, This is a deep point Extremely important Jesus actually willfully Lays his life down When he dies He does so on his own terms In his own way He gives up his spirit He yields it up That's what it says In the crucifixion passages Of the four gospels across them yeah. Is that He didn't naturally die like we would he yeah. sacrificed himself. So, yeah, he says uh, at any point in time, I call down legion angels. We'll, we'll get this yes, over with. You yes. know what I mean? He suffered for the exact amount of time and yep. the exact amount of way. So that, my hour has now come. Yes. Everything about mm-hmm. him is unique. So when we say that, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, they they murdered him. In one sense, that's true. In one sense, they spare their responsibility. In other sense, that there's nothing that happened to Christ that was not apart from his hand. That they didn't capture him at any point. And say, well, you know, I was going to try to make it a little longer till I was forty, but I didn't. I didn't quite get there. Mm-hmm. So he willfully undertakes that. That's important. Also, we see the discharge he made under the law. So what you're going to get into is under the law, him fulfilling that that law, including the Mosaic law. So this gets into also, as all things do, connected together. This gets into salvation as well. Oh yeah, uh, this is the very definition. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, I think. A creed-like statement they use in First Corinthians fifteen three to four. I delivered to you. This is Paul to the Corinthians as a first importance. What I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was brewed, uh, buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's a creed-like statement contained within the New Testament. Uh, we a, told you it was there. A, <laughs> we a, said that a summary of belief. So, uh, so he he's under the law. So. Uh, that's not the same way that we're under the law. When it says that you're under the law, you and I, he he, he means under the condemnation. Mm-hmm. So he's not under the condemnation, but under the command, and he fulfills that command. So, yeah. so the law in which that must be fulfilled for righteousness, Christ does. That's what's called traditionally called the active obedience of Christ. 
as he actively fulfills the law. So you have two aspects of Christ's obedience. Both are necessary. You have the active in which that he's under law and fulfills the law, and you also see the passive when he suffers. Submits. Submits or, 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 or suffers. So, so passive in the Latin means to suffer. So as he, as he takes on the penalty of sin, which that he does not deserve in and of himself, mm-hmm. but he is imputed from us uh, because he has made sin. That's also important with the atonement. It's important to see that he willfully lays his life down and also that he's legally guilty of sin because he actually takes it from you. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Agreed. So, so you get the, uh, active, the, the the active and passive obedience here. You get the active of him fulfilling the law that's under the law. You get the passive of him being crucified and taking on this grievous sorrows. Here, <clears throat> since we've already went down some side trails, here is the heart of the gospel. Luther said justification is the doctrine on which a church stands or falls. I think he actually said that. <laughs> so um, here's the thing the real dividing line of true and false religion, true and false gospel. Double imputation. Double imputation. That is, uh, two directions. Two directional imputation in that way to understand this. That is, on the one hand, as they confess here, he's being made sin and a curse for us. Enduring most grievous sorrows and his soul, most painful sufferings in his body, he was crucified, he died. Active passive obedience. Same thing. Now, in application to us, as recipients of grace, you have that thing, that sin, that punishment that you deserve is imputed, that is counted, that is um, given to Christ. Legally. Legally. That's important. Um, yeah. We'll talk about that. So it, he takes it from us. Okay. That's, um, if you want to say negative imputation, however you'd like to frame it. He takes the punishment I we wouldn't deserve. frame it like that, I oh. don't think. Oh, okay. <laughs> Positive imputation. <laughs> is that he gives us his righteousness. That's so, the great exchange. Yep. Yes. So the great exchange, however, you could, there's a lot of terminology flowing around. True and false gospel is at the heart, the work of Christ. Like I said, the, the when Luther says the doctrine of justification is uh, on which a church stands or falls, what he, what he means is <laughs> if you, if you misunderstand how this works, you don't understand anything about the gospel. So, when you misunderstand the work of Christ and what it does, then you don't get it. So, what Christ has done is two things, primarily. Taking what you deserve and giving you what you don't. But what he gives, he, he merits. He doesn't just, in a legal fiction, um, <laughs> as the Catholic Church would critique, he doesn't just um, say, well, you wasn't righteous and now you are because I said so. But that his actual righteousness, he gives it's a real concrete righteousness. It's very important that he actually merits. He yeah. has. Yeah, so it's important to see the legal nature of this atonement. So when we say that you are like Christ, uh, that doesn't mean that you're like Christ in his uniqueness. So that doesn't mean that he's, uh, you're like Christ in the same way that Christ is actually Christ. It means legally, uh, actually, but, act- but also legally. Also in the same way, Christ is not a sinner in the same way that you are. So I, I don't remember who it was. Some heretic was up talking and said, well, Jesus is actually a murderer on a tree. So Jesus is actually these things now because he takes on sin. And that's not true. Uh, that is a great blasphemy against our Lord. He's counted as. He's counted as. Uh, that's, legally, uh, that's legally the exchange. So you operate inside a legal system if you operate inside of God's world. 
And that legal system is what means under the law. That's what he means, under the law. So it's a legal exchange. That doesn't mean Christ changes his perfection or his identity. That just means that he legally takes your your penalty. Mm-hmm. And that's actually, but that doesn't mean he transforms his nature. Right. Into, that's a, into a sinner. Into a sinner. That's the same way that you're not deity now because you share in Christ's likeness. Um, you, you, I think at his coming you'll be as close as you can be, mm-hmm. but you won't be deity. Yeah. As, as in, you won't have the hypostatic union such as Christ does. Hypostatic. <laughs> Hypostatic, sir. Hypo. Hyper. Hyper. <laughs> Get that hyperstatic. That's that fast static. <laughs> it's, so, it's moving around, that static. <laughs> so, uh, so that's all. That's all. I'll, I'll talk about that. But that, that's what I'll say about that. So you, you see the, the, the fulfillment of these things and the imputation of... Okay. Of so in the active side of his obedience in his humanity, we tend to intellectualize this. I don't know if you've ever been through suffering. It's rough. <laughs> Christ went through worse. Mm. Um, his suffering, you can't even comprehend. You never could. And this isn't supernatural, divine suffering. This He's is, an infinite being. He suffers, he suffers infinitely, in, in unlike his, you. In his substitution, in this work, the level of this suffering is incomprehensible. What he takes, that's this passive part. That's usually what's emphasized, by the way, in preaching. That he's taking this for you. That only gets you halfway. (laughs) That's the problem. That just makes you not guilty. That doesn't Mm -hmm. make you righteous. Exactly. So in this theoretical not guilty state, you're not going to heaven. (laughs) Yeah. You're not making it because guess what? Not guilty ain't good enough. That just means you've just, you've, you simply, you haven't done your due yet. That just means Mm -hmm. you haven't messed up. Now you're back, (laughs) you're back to ground. You're back to the garden. Let's Mm -hmm. say it that way. Yeah. But he fulfills that what you should do and he gives it to you as a gift. Okay. Uh, He saw no corruption. Why is that important? Because it's prophesied. Yeah. At the end of the day, this is a a good reason. This is a validation of who he is. Yeah. Not the only reason, but a big reason here is that everyone else that's ever died decayed. (laughs) Not him. Not our Lord. He didn't deserve it. Mm -hmm. He couldn't be held by it. Amen, man. He rose from the dead on the third day in the same body in which he suffered. That's massive. This Mm -hmm. isn't... He appeared in the hearts of his disciples. He was, they felt his presence. They felt him. No. Nope. He physically arose and left, and they saw his glorified body, and they placed their hands in it. Right? They ate with him. They loved him. They saw him. That's not it, man. This idea of like anything, le- it was a big mass uh it was an hallucination. <laughs> you gotta stop. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of liberal Christianity man out there just operating ex opero, man. We ain't yeah. about that life. I like to call liberal Christianity uh, paganism. Paganism, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so he sits at the right hand of his father. It's where he's at now in his humanity. His human nature <laughs> is glorified and interceding. That's the only hope you have. That's it. If this ain't so, it's into the into the state of the dead. Pa, yeah, you want to get into that? Yeah. Okay. So, the, so he was actually dead. So, that is, his soul and body were separated. So the Apostles' Creed, I think it's the Apostles' Creed, actually says he descends into hell. Yes. So that they meant Sheol. They yeah. Meant the so they they mean hell as in the place of the dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean. I just want to state that because I've had multiple people ask me about that. Does Christ go to hell? And the answer right. is n- no. In the Catholic system, he does. Because he has to go to purgatory. 
Um, oh, wow. That's a problem. <laughs> so, so uh, what? it's a good question. So his descent. Mm. So you have a descent into the state of the That's dead. That's what the Apostles' Creed says. He uh-huh. descended he into He descended. Hell. So you have the, the descent as he actually goes to the state of the dead where a man would go. A righteous man, anyway. Then you have the ascension, right? Back out of the place of the dead mm-hmm. unto his body, glorified unto the Father. Um, so the descent is into the place of the dead, not into eternal punishment of what, which is most people that think of hell have a very, I don't even know, like Dante's Inferno idea of hell, but seven rings. <laughs> uh, but the, so when we say hell, I'm not going to get into it, but it's not, it's not hell in, in, the, in the sense that a modern evangelical would think of hell. It's hell in the, in the place of the dead. Okay. Sheol. 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 I agree. Sheol. So that's the so decent. The, the, the point is he actually died. That's what the Apostle Creed wants to get across. That's what this is confessing. Also, also, I don't know how many people said, well, it says that he died three days, but it wasn't three days. Okay. And I say, what do you mean? He said, it wasn't 72 hours. Okay. I say, well, the way they're using that is the day before Sabbath, Sabbath, the day after. Yeah. So that's three days. That's mm-hmm. that's the Jewish day for you there. That's how they're using that. Well, yeah. was it wasn't seventy two hours. No, that that's well said. I think some people have changed like the timeline of the crucifixion in order to try to fit that in. Yeah. So some, have, somehow they're saying, well, you just don't know when he, he rose. Like, did he rise on Sunday? I don't. I don't know. Right. So so yeah, that's, that's ignorant. So the three days means okay, day before Sabbath, Sabbath day after. Okay, hang so, on. So he rose that morning, but that that's a day, right? Yeah. It doesn't have to be seventy-two hours, right? Okay, that's, I'll just leave. That's it ridiculous. To somehow say, "Well, this is—they're not accounting this correctly because it's not seventy-two hours." Like, are, are you propagating the use of the word "day" inside of that? Like, obviously, this is when he rose. Here's the day. Mm-hmm. You formulate it from that. Anyway, that's just—he's crucified on Friday. He crucified on Friday. Raises gr- on Sunday. That's in, three days. He, he's in the ground on Friday. He's in the ground on Saturday. He raises Sunday morning, which he descends into the place of the dead with his body not decaying. Yeah, yeah. Saw no corruption. Mm-hmm. He ascends. He's resurrected, glorified. He ascends, and he's going to return. This mm. is the heart of the Christian message. Yeah. So the first advent necessitates a second. So we can't say that Jesus is rule over all, and then if you're a sinful man, you can live in that humanity forever. Mm-hmm. Their answer is that his patience is to bring you to repentance. Yeah. When you do not repent, you heave upon wrath, and he will come and judge you rightfully mm. at the end of the world. That's important. So much in in here. This in the is world. Uh, it might Consum- be when he says that he will return. That's consummation. This is the end of the world judgment. That doesn't mean you won't be judged now. He's they're, they're referring to the second coming here. They are. Yeah. So uh, so much in here. <laughs> so much to consider. The Christianity is about Christ. You got the angels worked in there too. So yeah. you got to judge men and angels. Mm-hmm. They, they, they like the angels. Yeah, so we are to judge angels as well. Mm, yeah. You tell me. So yeah, uh, As you share in the, the, the person of Christ. Yeah. I'll also say that on that angels, uh, 2 Peter 2, 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to change of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. So they're, they're there, kept until judgment, then they're going to be judged. Uh, second coming. Um, the Ascension, Acts one eleven. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. We believe in a visible, bodily return of Christ. Of course, that's the rapture. <laughs> you just had to uh, Well, we lost them all. <laughs> so, so, paragraph five. 
Hold on. Uh, okay. Hold on a minute. Okay. I was gonna say something else. Oh no. Oh, uh, well, hold on. Something to do with the end of the world. Oh, the end of the world. Uh, so when he returns, that's actually, I really want to get this point across. That's the end of redemption. It's not when you die, okay? Uh, when you die and, you, and you're present with the Father, when you're present with Christ, you have promises yet made to you. Uh, that is of, of a resurrection of body. Of a resurrection body and of a resurrected cosmos. So this world is simply going to be, this world, this physical universe is going to be your home. This earth will be uh, redeemed. Uh, that's important. So we're not floaty, ethereal people. This earth is going to be transformed by uh, the the atonement and the redemption of Christ. Yeah. So, you, so when you die as a believer, you have promises yet made to you that you will inherit a body. Okay. Agreed. Thank Agreed. you. I, I just want to get that across. I think a lot of people lose lose sight of that. Sure. And when I say there's so much in this, that's what I'm, I mean. No oh, right. So many points of doctrine are influenced by well, every point of doctrine is influenced by Christ and a right understanding of Him. So yeah, uh, I think we look to when we think of salvation, we think I'm dead, I'm in heaven, that's the end. Yeah. So the goal, uh, the, so everybody is a, is a modern Christian. The goal of a modern Christian is to die and go to heaven, and that's that's fine. Uh, the Bible depicts not as your your death is completely unnatural. You going away from here is is also in, in a state of uh, intermediate state. Uh, the, the gospel message is that the universe you and I tread, the, the earth that we walk underfoot, will be transformed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not simply. Romans 8. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay, good. Uh, yeah, well, we won't get into all that. I've got a lot to say about that. A Mitch, real but, redemption, yeah. yeah I've got a lot to say about that. Yeah, I know. Paragraph 5. So heaven's not your home, right? Just passing through. Oh, gosh. Yep. Doug. Paragraph 5. <laughs> I agree with him on this. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of God. My gosh. Procured reconciliation and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given unto him. That is it. That is the best confessional statement I've ever heard. I'm going to level with you. That could, that, that could be... Sh- level with this bitch. That could be... Here's the level. That could be shared across Westminster Savoy. I'm not even sure. It doesn't even matter. That is fantastic. I'd have to look that up. I don't remember. That is so well I'm sure, said. I'm sure it is. I'm just going to read that again. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of God, procured reconciliation, purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given unto him. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? Romans 3, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Um, 28, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith. Uh, Hebrews nine fifteen, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. John, Romans, Hebrews, those are the three books that I would recommend for Christology. Um, what about Philippians? I mean, that. Colossians? Yeah, I mean, it's it's everywhere. Come on, man. But, but, okay, never mind. <laughs> you go ahead, Ed. <laughs> I agree. I would just, you know, I'm going to give you a hard time. Don't be so sensitive. Oh, that's fine. So, uh, I don't think I even need to add any comment. I mean, five's pretty much. Agreed. I mean, what, what else am I going to say about that? That's, that's redemption right there. 
That's the great exchange. That's what it means to be saved. That's the purpose and work of Christ. Amen. I mean, what else? What so, else can you say? So we're going to split this episode into two. That's right. This is part one. Next, the next one will be part two. Chapter eight will be two episodes. There you go. Because it's massive. Mm. Thank you for being with us. <laughs>